Hello Jason, this is Rob, also known as Minion from Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy. And I'm not sure if I can, well, I don't agree with the idea that rules over rulings uh, or, you know, um, rule zero or whatever you want to call it is something that is necessarily, you know, a, something that will be abused by the GM. And also I see that there's no connect I don't think there is any connection let me reword that I don't think there's any connection with the rule of cool um I think all these kind of uh these are misconceptions <laughs> quite deeply does anybody else feel like that um if necessary I'll get into the nitty-gritty but uh, yeah it seems very very unusual way of uh understanding um yeah that the concept of rules over ruling anyway uh interested to see what other people think Essentially, that rule zero or invoking rule zero is kind of unhealthy. Let them fight. Well, pop yourself a beer or a cold libation. Let me tell you how I wrote this little thing. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said, I'll start with some talking and some movie clips of popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations, and some groundness exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxing, full month horror movie marathons. Sometimes I'll let the box come on. Contest and of course you know what's all about games. That's the slow down. Let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG Variety Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. Today, we're going to discuss Rule Zero. Is it good or is it bad? We're also going to discuss Twilight 2000, 4th edition by Free League. Actually, we're not going to discuss the system all that much, but I got to play in a game in it, so I'm going to give you a session recap of how that went. After that, we're going to have some calls from Barney Dicker, of the Local Ludus podcast and Arlen Walker of Live from Pelham's Wasteland podcast and YouTube channel to kind of continue the discussion on failing forward. At the top of the show, you heard from Minion, also known as Rob, of the Confessions of a Wee Timmer Spooshy podcast, and Arlen Walker, of course, from Live from Pelham's Wasteland, as well as from Ken Watanabe. So, Oh, oh, by the way, in case you didn't get the joke, or not joke, but, you know, when you look at the show notes and you look at the picture for the episode, 227 is a show that I grew up watching. It was on when I was in high school. It, you know, it's amazing that Regina King was so, you know, little in that. And, you know, now she's grown up from that show to be such a great actress. And there were a lot of great actors in that show. So I have a lot of fond memories of it. And when I saw this was episode 227, you know, I'm not going to talk about that sitcom, but I, you know, I, I do have fond memories of that sitcom. I rewatched a couple episodes recently. It still holds up as, you know, pretty good, all things considered. And yeah, so I, I couldn't do an episode 227 without referencing that show. But first topic tonight is going to be Rule Zero. One of the historians of RPGs, especially of TSR RPGs, is a gentleman by the name of John Peterson. 
You may know him from his famous book and blog, Playing at the World, and he has a book that's come out not too long ago called The Elusive Shift. On his blog on 16 January of 2021, he talks about the origins of Rule Zero, and I'm just going to read directly off his blog. The idea that a game master has the discretion to alter or discard published rules was not an invention of role-playing games. It is derived from a wargaming tradition going back to the free Kriegspiel of the 19th century. But role players enshrined it as a principle that is today known as Rule Zero, a proposed meta-rule of role-playing games, albeit not an uncontroversial one. This critical position that we should hold this as a universal meta-rule occurred to the early adopters of role-playing games fairly early, as shown here in the Gamer's First Law of Ed Symbolist, designer of Chivalry and Sorcery, in Alarms and Extrusions number 38, which was a fanzine, in 1978. Alarms and Extrusions, by the way, is, I believe, the longest-running fanzine. I think it's still being published. You can get copies of it still if you go to that if you search for that and go to their website, you can still get copies of that. Anyhow, so the idea of Rule Zero goes way back. We know that. One of the more, so let me tell you where I fall in. I'm not going to give a whole lot of personal opinion during this. I'm going to show a couple different sides to kind of open the debate up here. But as I was doing research for this, one of the things I came across was on the rpgstackexchange.com website, and they're talking about what is Rule Zero. And this was a discussion from 2017. And, and I think my position of kind of how it falls is pretty well encapsulated by one of these posts. So I am going to read you that because I think it'll, it'll kind of show you where I'm coming from. Although I'm not going to really weigh in and say one side's right or wrong. So J.A. Street, Sierra Tango, Romeo, Echo, India, Charlie Hotel, on 29 June of 2017, posted, Rule zero, simply put, is that the GM is the final arbiter of all things in the game. He, she, can change, make up, and remove any rule at any time. Most role-playing games employ Rule zero. Without Rule Zero, you're playing more or less a simulation game rather than a role-playing game. Okay, and he goes on to talk about other things. But I think that's kind of where I've fallen into it. Without the ability to modify the rules and to make changes, I kind of think if you're just playing strictly rules as written, you're veering towards that simulationist game. Now, that... We can have big arguments over that, but as many people point out in over an Arlen show, and I'll make there's some links in the show notes to a couple episodes of Arlen Walker's show live from Pelham's Wasteland, specifically episode 2.125 and 2.128. 2.128 are people calling in about what Arlen says in episode 2.125, which I'm going to play. I got permission from Arlen. And I'm going to play you what he says in that episode about Rule Zero. But to give you the quick summary of how Rule Zero affects lighter games, the general opinion is 
if you have really light rule sets, the GM is going to have to make up rules when things come up that aren't covered in those rule sets. And when they come up with those rules, the ideal thing, and, and most of us, I think, would agree with us, the ideal thing would be that they kind of jot that down or make a note of it. And so going forward, they will adjudicate that same situation the same way. Now, that may or may not happen, but if you go up, you know, the characters are going up, they come across a chasm, they have to jump over this chasm. Well, we one game at the GM says you roll into your decks, because the rules don't cover chasm jumping. So in one game, the GM says roll over your decks, and then the next week they come across a similar situation. Maybe they're coming back, you know, back that way in the dungeon, and the GM says, well, roll, roll against your strength. Well, that's going to frustrate players, and, and I agree with that frustration. So the GM does need to be even-handed and hopefully standardized in how they put this forward. And I don't think that's a very controversial opinion, but I do think we want to consider that. So with that said, what, hold on, Maddie wants some attention. I'm going to pause this for a second. Anyhow... I, I think most of us agree that those rulings should be pretty much adjudicated the same way when we come across similar situations. And, you know, Arlen's kind of talked about this thing before. Not Well, a while back, he, talked, he did a book review of Arbiter Worlds by Alexander Macris. And I know Macris is a divisive figure in the hobby for things he's done outside the hobby. Um, and I'm not here to defend or attack him. But Arbor Worlds actually talks about this quite a bit in, in when it discusses rules light versus heavier systems. And in there, he talks about how, you know, when you utilize rule zero, you should be recording these rulings and you should be doing them uniformly thereafter. And that's something that I think Arlen's kind of agrees with. And, and I'm pretty sure in his episode, he kind of agreed with that. And that's goes along kind of with his comments. So this isn't, you know, radical thinking on either side. I think, because most people would consider Macris a pretty old school GM, where Arlen arguably is a, a newer school GM, is he plays a lot of narrative games. And I've played those games with him. I like to play all kinds of games. So I'm not on one side or the other here, although I do think Dual Zero is a, a necessity in games. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play Arlen's position. And this is a, a sound clip get used with his permission from his episode 2.125. And it's about seven minutes long. Sorry about that. So, but I recorded it at standard speed. So if you're listening to me at faster than regular speed, it'll go faster. And if you're not, go ahead, bump up to one and a half speed or whatever, and it won't be too take as long to listen to it. But here's here's Arlen's complete position. I didn't want to paraphrase him, and I don't edit this at all. I haven't gone in here and removed any pauses or anything else because I, I don't want to edit Arlen's ideas. I want him to present his own ideas. So he's going to present his ideas, and then I'll be back and share a discussion I had with Rob or Minion over Discord. But to go back to RPGs, I think what I'm getting at is not about trust or lack of trust. I don't think it's about fairness. I think it's about health. 
I think it's about the health of a game and an experience that in the same way that having an X card in play, even if it never gets tapped, is a sign of a healthy game, right? The idea that having that outlet is something, everybody being on board with that outlet is something that I think is central to having a healthy horror experience in an RPG. That having rules that are a neutral ground to which both the players and the GM have agreed and that become a central framework for the collaborative experience, I think is something um, important for a healthy game. And I don't think it's really rulings over rules in, in some ways or rules over rulings in some ways. I think there's nothing wrong with having a game where rulings are to be expected as long as those rulings are consistent and they become part of, for lack of a better term, the, the sacred text that the the ruling becomes a part of the sacrosanct element of the game mechanics, essentially, that nobody is above. I guess what I'm getting at is this idea that nobody is above the game mechanics. Because I think that is something deeply unhealthy. And um, I saw on, on um, Twitter one time, I saw a, a thing, a person saying, um, if I make a change to my game, it's because I know or I think that the players will have more fun this way and you had better like it and you can play in my game that way or not at all. It is true that players may prefer that change to the rules as a an experience that they may prefer the different rules at the same time that person is basically describing an abusive relationship right you'll like it or you can stop engaging with it and uh, when i and i am above your kind of consideration of these rules i guess what i'm getting at is that that person it would be totally different if that person was upfront about the changes and you know came to the players and said hey i think that we've been playing this way and that's not really the way we should play but they're not taking that approach they're taking the approach of well i'm the dm so i so rule zero essentially rule zero is more than rule one and my response to that is that I think rule zero is actually in some ways unhealthy, that the GM is always right is not the way that we should approach these games if we want to have an experience that is predicated upon shared imagination the this and specifically the value of shared imagination, that there is too much at not um, essentially that rule zero or invoking rule zero is kind of unhealthy. It's not the basis for a healthy experience.
at the gaming table, I don't think. At least in um, certain forms of it. To use to go back to your example of uh, switching the damage for a, a dagger versus a spear, like in a closed elevator or something. I think that is fine as long as that becomes part of the way that the game is played going forward. The problem is when that happens in one situation but not the other because the GM or the DM is deciding upon things like that sort of willy-nilly. Right. That they've decided, oh, well, in this one situation, we'll do this thing. And in this other situation that is basically the same, we'll do this other thing. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a better way to put it. But I, I do think that it has to do. I don't think it's about fairness. I don't think it's about um, or rather, I think more than being about fairness, more than being about trust or anything like that, it's really about Health, the, the healthy relationship between adults who want to invoke the shared experience of RPGs, I think, is dependent upon an agreement about the value of the rules. And that it's not to say that every situation where that agreement isn't a part of the, the table play is unhealthy, but it's certainly a, it, that it almost that it, um, The possibility exists when that agreement isn't there, if that makes sense. In the same way that just because an X card isn't on the table doesn't mean that uh, everybody is going to have a bad time. But a game with an X card on the table, it has a an outlet, a security that um, it, I think it's the same way with an agreement about the sanctity of the rules. I don't know. I'm going to think more about it. I'm, I'm trying to figure out a better way to put it because I don't think it's rulings over rules. I think it actually allows for rulings over rules regularly when those rulings don't contradict the rules. That's the big thing is that if you um, – a ruling that contradicts the pre-existing rules is – a serious problem, but rulings that fill out the rules experience at the table are totally okay. So I don't know. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna think more about it and get back to you guys about it. Okay. Now I'm gonna read a, some snippets of a discussion I had with Rob online. And this is in response to the idea of rulings over rules being bad. I'm not going to read all this. He did give me permission to read these snippets from Discord, from our conversation. But I'm not going to read all of them because they, they don't. the whole conversation doesn't pertain. It, it's been really hot over in Japan, and he's been – he's had kind of a tough time with the heat and – been kind of worn down lately, so he didn't want to get on this morning and, and do a, a voice recording with me. So that's why I'm reading this Discord conversation back and forth. But Rob says that he feels 
rulings over rules is a very democratic way of making pragmatic judgments. It's a bit like common law. He doesn't see what's silly about it. He, it's not without problems, but it beats 10,000 pages of books. I mentioned that it's pretty divisive, and I posted links to two articles. If you just Google, do a web search for Rule Zero, you'll get arguments for and against. The first two results I had were from the Luddite.com, where it says Rule Zero is bullshit, and NerdAnarchy.com, where it said Rule Zero is the GM's best friend. So, you, you know, there, it, it's definitely a divisive topic. Um, many mentions don't tell them about free creek spiel, the burst artery. And as we know from John Peterson's article, rule zero does come from free creek spiel. Um, Manion said that, so his take on rule zero is this. If something comes up that's not in the rules, the GM can suggest options and probabilities to players for taking an action. The GM might even accept modifications to their suggestion. Then, once they agreed on how a specific situation could play out, they would roll the dice. And I don't think Arlen would have a problem with that suggestion. That That's much different than the DM just saying, this is how it's going to be, you, you know, and without any player input. Although, I don't know that there needs to be any player input. I think it's okay if the GM just says, this is how it's going to be. The key being the GM needs to be uniform in how they do it, pretty much. And they're not being unfair in how they're doing it or they're not being malicious or they're not, you know, just being super duper arbitrary in how they're doing it, that they're, they're somewhat uniform in the way they make these kind of calls. Um, and, and Manion said that he doesn't think there's a need to, to build up an additional body of rules using these rulings as long as the GM can continue to make rulings in a similar manner. And I think, Arlen's argument is that it's hard for some GMs to do the same rollings. Did I use dex or strength last time? You, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I mentioned to him the point that Arlen says in his section about GMs using his power trip about the guy saying, my, you know, it's my rules or leave my game. And Menion said, that sounds like BS, you, you know, and internet nonsense. And and that may be, I, I can't imagine a GM running a game like that and keeping groups very long, at least not in the modern day. Once upon a time, when you only had face-to-face -face games, maybe you would play with an abusive GM. But these days, with so many options, you know, although all those players stay in that Adam dudes, the, the guy that created Dungeon World that, you, you know, did the whole rape in the characters, the player's character in the online game, which I think is still out there on YouTube and go watch it. Um, and they stayed in his game. So maybe players do say abusive jams games, but you know, you know, they should have told him to screw off and left his game to be honest. Um, but that that's a separate section when you have people that, you, you know, say they're, they're, you know, they're, they're good people and then act like, like that. You, you get to see their real colors, but that's neither here nor there. So anyway, so Rob is online a lot more than I am. He's on Twitter and Facebook and things like that. And I don't do those things because I think they're toxic and, you know, are leading to the downfall of our society. Not, I, I, I'm only somewhat tongue in cheek when I say that, but 
he is involved in those things. And he said that from what he sees on things like Twitter, the observations he's drawn are that there's a big movement among non-OSR and non-old school gamers to attack rulings over rules on one of two grounds. The first ground he sees it being attacked are that the rules should be fully written down gameable by players and GMs, i.e. do not let the GM run the game. Let the rules run the game and the GM has no power. Number two is that they want OSR games or old school games to be more like narrative games, Powered by the Apocalypse, but because they don't have the social rules, that means OSR games are just dumb battle games. So now I'm not saying those are Arlen's arguments. Those are arguments that that he's that Minion's seen online. And and I could see people making those arguments. And then we start talking about social situations. And you don't need social rules. Like he points out that there's a lot of role-playing in games like D&D, RuneQuest, Warhammer Fantasy Battle, or Warhammer Fantasy Role-Playing. And despite the fact that you don't necessarily make skill rules for social moves. And he said they're just different systems and settings and expectations. And that's a key part, expectations. And often they use the same words like role-play with very different meanings than modern games like, power, or newer games, I should say, like Powered by the Apocalypse. And I said that true, and you don't necessarily need social rules, but there's an advantage to codifying them because otherwise people with poor real life social skills can be penalized because they can't make compelling arguments like an outwardly social gamer can. At which point Menion said that's always been an issue, but the way he does it are ability checks, intelligence, wisdom, etc. And you apply those when there's a doubt something will work across the board, even if somebody has a smart plan. And, and and we agreed, and, and and that's how I do it too. As long as a player, if a player wants to con a guard or sweet talk a guard or intimidate a guard, as long as they tell me what they want to do and they can articulate what they want their character to do, I don't care if they can do a good job in making the argument themselves. As long as they can say what they want the character to do, I'll give them the bonus and let them make the die roll to do it. And I think that's fair. And, and in fact, Rob, Rob even said you know, that, that he agrees and, and that we shouldn't, you, you know, that voices, role-playing, backstory, it's all optional, just like, like having good social skills. It's all optional in these games, or should be all optional. And I agree with that. You, you know, we shouldn't penalize players because they're not good actors. We shouldn't penalize players because they're not thespians and they're not articulate and they're not good at giving speeches and not or even they're not good writers, you know, just because somebody's not good at crafting a fancy backstory doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to play in your game. You, you know, and if if you exclude players for that, well, you, you know, whatever, but you're you're pretty elitist at that point and you're definitely not old school. And I'll stay with old school over elitist people that are going to exclude people who can't write backstories all day long. But and I'm not saying there are. Well, I'm sure there are GMs that do that. I'm not saying that anybody listening to the show does that. But so for the most part, I don't think that Rob and Arlen are that far apart. I think the key with rule zero is that it's not used as a power play and a power trip. And I really don't think it's used that that way that often. You might read on forums and people doing posturing online that they're doing that. 
But in today's world, I can't imagine that happening very often. I really can't. Um, I, I can't imagine a GM doing a power trip like that, keeping players. And, and if you're ever in a game like that, then I don't think it's wrong for you to call the GM out on that or, you know, to communicate with the other players that, hey, this GM's being a dick and, you know, do you want to keep playing with him or do you guys want to go to a different group? You know, I, I don't think that's wrong. There, there's no rule zero isn't carte blanche to a GM to take a power trip, but I think rule zero is needed. And although Rob is against the rule of cool, and I won't go any more detail that if Rob wants to call in on the his opinion on rule of cool, then he can. But he he's not fine of the rule of cool. But I am, and I and I know Arlen is, and, and I think the rule of cool rule zero is a big part of that, because a lot of times when you invoke the rule of cool meaning you want to try to do something cool, even if the rules don't normally support that, you need to invoke rule zero. The GM needs to invoke rule zero to allow them to do that rule of cool thing. So, you know, we can't throw rule zero out if we want to keep the rule of cool in. So even for folks that are kind of on the fence on rule zero, if you like the rule of cool, well, guess what? You're using rule zero to enable that rule of cool to happen. So. I, I, like I said, I think there's more common ground here than there isn't, but I, I think, I don't know. I, I'm, I think I'm going to stop there because I don't want to put more words in people's mouths. Hopefully I'll, I'll get some response on from Arlen and from Mannion and from other people on this idea. But I think as long as a, a, a GM is being kind of uniform and co- in how they're doing rule zero. I think as long as they're being consistent in the way they're applying this, I don't have an issue with rule zero. And I think you need to have it. And I think many of us use it anyway. I mean, think about it. Anytime you throw a rule out or don't use a rule in a game that you don't like, you're doing rule zero. That's part of part of what it is. So when you're playing D&D and you say, well, we're not going to use encumbrance rules, Guess what? You're using rule zero. You know, anytime you leave a rule out or don't play with a rule, you're, you're doing rule zero. It is what it is. To wrap this up, I just want to point out that ultimately I think we see this is more of a gray issue, not a black and white issue. Rule zero isn't bad and it's not the best thing since sliced bread. I think rule zero is necessary. And while for the purpose of clickbait, I kind of framed Arlen as the bad guy initially here, although that depends on your point of view, right? So it all comes back to from a certain point of view. You know, some people are going to be on Arlen's side, some people are going to be on Minion's side, but I don't know that we need to have sides here. And and Arlen's definitely not the bad guy, you know, by any means here. I, I, I think both positions are valid, but I think ultimately we all probably really fall somewhere in the middle here. So, but but I just wanted to say, Arlen. We had no business blaming all this on you. Even though you started the whole mess. Sandra! <laughs> all right. Mary, forgive us, we were wrong. Not that you were particularly right. <laughs> yes, she was. She was thinking of all of us. You're being a very good neighbor. The best neighbor. Mary, can you forgive us? Well... 
Is that all that's left in my pie? Girl, I'll bake you another one. And I'll bake you one, too. <clears throat> Do you need any boiled water? Well, here we are, one big happy family again. So, everybody, if you have comments, thoughts, I'm sure you do. Please, no attacking Menion or Arlen. Both their points are valid and their points of view are valid. And to be honest, if we all sat down around a table with a nice cold beer in our hand, I think we would probably not be all that far apart in some ways. Of course, we are going to have some different opinions because we're human beings. But if you have thoughts on this discussion about Rule Zero, call in. You can leave a message via the Anchor app. You can send an email to nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com. If you attach a sound clip to that email, I'll play it on the show, make you famous. Otherwise, I'll just read your email out, kind of like I read Rob's comments out. And like Rob, if you send me comments on Discord, I'll read those comments out as well. So you, this is an interactive podcast. I welcome anybody to get involved. I, I ask that you not attack the other people involved. But if you want to go after their ideas, that's okay. But, you know, we're, we're going to try to refrain from personal attacks. Some people get worked up over these subjects. But that said, we're going to move on to the next subject. I'm going to talk about a session recap for a Twilight 2000 game that Carl Rodriguez recently ran. Carl Rodriguez, the GM extraordinaire. This was his birthday game. You may also know him. He occasionally appears on Amy's podcast, The Gemologist Presents. And in fact, on an episode of The Gemologist Presents, Carl and I created my Twilight 2000 character. And so there's a link in the show notes to the episode with character creation. And there's a link in the show notes where Carl gives his version of a session recap and you know for this episode i'm about or the session i'm about to talk about and he gives the gm's bird's eye view perspective so go check that out it's a pretty good episode it was dropped on um 22 july of 2021 hopefully the same day i get this one published and he doesn't show numbers it's episode 15 i think but it's it's uh presents the birthday bash or something like that it'll be in the show notes so let's get on to my summary session recap twilight 2000 i recently got to play in a game of the new edition of twilight 2000 the one free league is doing and it was a lot of fun the gm was carl rodriguez and you'll know him if you're familiar with the Geomologist Presents podcast, Amy's podcast, Carl occasionally appears on that podcast. And he's, you know, also, I've referred to him often as Carl Rodriguez, GM Extraordinary. He's a great GM. And this was his birthday game. So he was playing, and Amy, who's his wife, was also playing. Kevin Madison, the dungeon user, was playing. And there were a couple other people I don't think at podcast, so I'm not going to mention their names. But... It was a great game, and I'm just going to kind of do the recap from my character's perspective. So, and if you go over the Geomologist Presents and you're really, really bored, there's like an hour and a half long episode where we created my character in that game, and, you know, we go step by step in how we did it. So if you're really curious how character creation works in that game, you can listen to that podcast. But 
effectively, my character's name is Sam, and he's based, he looks like Robert De Niro in the movie Ronan, and he's 40, he's like 43, 44 years old, and the way Twilight 2000, the character generation works, it's kind of like Traveler, effectively, if you're familiar with Traveler. You know, you pick a career, you do it, then you roll to see what happens. One of the roles you do at the end of your career is to see if the war has started yet, and then after you hit a certain age, you roll to see if your attributes start deteriorating due to old age. You roll to see if you can stay in a career. You roll to see if you get promoted in that career. There are a number of roles. Like I say, you can go over to his episode and listen to all that, the nitty-gritty. But basically, this character, had he had eight, like eight careers, and he had been like a mechanic, a delivery driver, a police officer for a little bit. He went went into the Army, was a mechanic in the Army. He, um, what else did he do? He had some medical training. He got out. He was a car, th- he got out. He, he was, a, we figured he was stationed over in Pol- over in Germany or Poland. He got out. He was with the European car theft ring for a while. And then he said he got out of life, he got out of that life of crime, settled in with a Polish lady on her farm. And then he did a couple terms as a farmer in Poland. And then the war started. So, he wasn't with the, the rest of the party when this adventure started. And in fact, my character didn't show up in the game until about an hour into the adventure. So you'll have to listen to Carl's recap to get the full picture, because I'm just going to retell it from my character's point of view. The So my character was working his way towards uh, Krakow, which is supposed to be a free city. And so he was he's going that way in his pickup truck with a load of potatoes, a detail added by Amy, and he's headed down. He has a hunting rifle and some other gear, but not a lot. Of, he doesn't have a whole lot of military gear. Now, this truck had been converted over to, you know, methyl alcohol, so you can run it. You can, you can make alcohol on a still or whatever to run it on, which is less effective than gas or diesel, but there's not really a whole lot of places producing gas and diesel anymore now that, you know, the, after the Third World War. Twilight 2000, if people aren't familiar is a what-if, it's a game in a what-if alternate history where World War III started in the 80s, and then, you know, we're surviving in the aftermath of that. There were some nuclear exchanges, some other stuff that went on. Your characters typically start in Europe, and then, you know, since most of the characters tend to be American, at some point you're going to try to get back to America. It's the same system as Dark Conspiracy, the original Dark Conspiracy was, actually which is a, another great game, but that's neither here nor there. So we start off, I'm driving my, my pickup, trying to get get there, and there have been battles and different things, so I'm trying to stay low under the radar. And these marauders, basically local warlords, um, this group of marauders own four, four more motorcycles, start harassing me, and they're trying to get me to pull over to take my pickup truck, which I'm not sure how, the, how they were going to do that unless they were going to put one bike in the back of the truck and then drive, you 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 know, since they were all single riders with, with no passengers, I don't know who was going to drive the truck. But anyway, they were trying to take my truck. Well, all of a, and, and I'm getting ready to do some evasive maneuvering, but before I get a chance to do that, this M113, an armed personnel character, carrier, it's the same kind you see in Vietnam movies, this, this M113 bursts out of the, and we're on this road along this kind of wooded area. It, it bursts through the brush, and the 50 cal on top opens up, 
and takes out two of the motorcycles. It takes out one of the riders and hits the other motorcycle, causing it to to crash, and the rider high sides, you know, he flies off the bike and crashes. And at that point, I slam on the, or Sam, I should say, slams on his truck brakes, and he's got a bunch of skills in driving, and he has a, a talent as a racer. So he, he's a really good mechanic, really good with tech, and a really good driver. Um, th- those are his primary specialties. But he, um, he, he, he slams on the brakes, and he manages to get it so one of the motorcycles rams right in the back of the pickup truck. And, and that motorcycle kind of flips over in the back of the truck, and the driver is thrown in the back of the truck. And I, I, fit, I did it, I kind of, so in that game, you can, you roll, and then depending on your successes, if you want to try to get better successes, you can roll again, you can push your roll. But if you get a one when you push your roll, then it, something bad happens. Typically, you'll take a point of stress or a point of damage. And, and I pushed the roll to get a better result and got a one. And so even though I succeeded, I ended up taking a point of damage. So from when he hit, maybe I wasn't wearing a seatbelt or something, I whacked my head on the steering wheel or something like that. But, but anyway, so the truck stopped. This one bike is in the back of the truck. The front two motorcycles were taken out by the 50 cal, and the other bike starts spinning around to, to get out of there. And one of the soldiers on the, ape, at the M113 starts shooting at that bike, but he misses. So the next turn starts, and these, and and the people start coming out of the APC. I can start seeing people come out of the APC, right? And, and this guy in civilian clothes runs up to to the one biker that was, um, they had a crash. It was still the the one hit by the fifty cal was was dead, but the the other one crashed, and, and he runs up, shoots him with a handgun. And then a lady in civilian clothes runs up and, and started patching him up, patching up the wounds, or, or, you know, just stabilizing that guy. And the, the motorcyclist, well, a, another guy takes a shot at the biker that was trying to get away, hits him in the head, kills him, right? And then the biker on the back of the, pickup truck starts shooting into the pickup truck with a pistol. I roll out of the pickup truck and roll underneath the truck because I really don't have room to maneuver the rifle or do anything. So I just kind of, hopefully these people, other people that just showed up are going to take out this guy in the back of the truck. Well, the the lady that had been patching the other guy up runs up with a shotgun and holds it on the guy in the back of the truck and talks him down, you know, intimidates him in, in a Polish accent, you know, t- tells him to drop his pistol and start picking the potatoes up that he knocked out of the back of the truck. And, um, and, and that was it for combat. So I kind of get acquainted with these group. This Everybody else seemed to be American soldiers, but this lady seems to be some kind of Polish resistance fighter, and I'm not sure what nationality the, the man in civilian clothes is, um, but he speaks Polish and English, and I found out later Russian as well. Um, that, that's a character that um, Kevin Madison was playing. Uh, the character is actually a German intelligence officer, but... My character doesn't know he's a German intelligence officer. Anyhow, we agree that it might be smart for, for, you know, we're all headed kind of towards Krakow. It might be smart to link up together and travel together through a little bit of intimidation and, and 
pressure, the the lady, which is played by Amy, she convinces this biker, the prisoner they have, to talk, and he he, he spills it the the Soviets and moved into the town we were headed towards where the marauders. So the whole reason they were going towards the same way I was is there's a, a town further down this road and supposedly the bandits, the marauders had taken over the town and they were headed that way to try to clear them out and help the town. Not so much to help the townsfolk, but they figured if they could get rid of them, then the townsfolk would help them. They'd be able to get supplies, whatnot. And um, anyway, so they were, but they were headed that way. And, and he tells them that the Soviets had moved in, chased the marauders out of town, and the marauders were headed to a town further south. So we pack up all the, the bikes, we salvage what we can, we get the, the, they were also modified to work on this methyl alcohol. So we, you know, siphon what we could in the truck and save the rest, and we have one usable bike. So Kevin Madison's character, the, the German intelligence agent, or officer, he gets on the one bike, and he's leading, kind of leading the convoy, and they, we decide to park the M113, you know, like 10 clicks away, and we left, to, there were a couple NPCs, there were a couple players that didn't show up to the game, so those characters were just NPCs, but those NPC crewmen stayed back with the, the vehicle and did repairs and did what they could do, and we took the pickup truck and the bike, the working bike, and those that were in uniform, I think, all switched to civilian clothes, I'm pretty sure. I don't remember them saying that, but I'm sure that's what happened. And my character speaks good, you know, Polish and German, because he had, you know, he's basically American expat, and he had lived in the country for a decade or so. Um, and so anyway, we, we pile up, we we take, put these prisoners in the back of pickup truck, and we, we head to this town that Soviet controlled with the idea that maybe we could trade these prisoners to them and see what we could get. So since they had chased some marauders out of town, maybe they'd want these prisoners. So so we go there, and Amy starts talking to them to do negotiations. And they they just, they do want the prisoners, and she she tries to negotiate to get fuel for that, some diesel. And um, they say, well, you know, they gave her a chit saying that she turned in two prisoners, and she'd have to go, go into town and talk to somebody to see what that was worth right now. And there, and we also found out, Kevin started talking to the guy, and also found out that, you know, if we had more information, that's valuable as well. And since we knew where the rest of the marauders were going, that was good information. And it's a good thing we have that information, because they just took the, the marauder. So when we rolled on the outskirts of town, there were citizens of the town out there digging a ditch, burying the bodies of, of other marauders. And when we turned these over to them, and they gave us the receipts for turning over these marauders. They just walked them over the ditch, shot them in the head, and <laughs> dropped them in there. So they, they didn't have any love for these, you know, these hooligans. Um, but yeah, and that's kind of where we ended the session, what was about there. We were getting ready to go into town to, to do some negotiations. So it was a lot of fun, and the system worked really well. So I'm, and hopefully there's going to be an ongoing game the car runs. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. But that is the Twilight 2000 session recap. <laughs> Maddie, you can stop. <laughs> Who's on the phone? Who 
who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's screaming is coming from inside the house. Hi, Jason. When I called in about failing forward and talked about success at a cost, I was kind of aware that I was, you know, mashing those two things together and there's a difference. But Arlen Walker's message uh, about the difference that you played uh, recently is, is super. It's so great. And it's always so nice to hear Arlen think theory uh, he he just always brings brings everything to life for me and precisely about that the way that mechanics influence and shape play imagination creativity you know that is that's for me always the crux so it's I love listening to what he has to say why did I lump failing forward and success at a cost or a price together because because as Arlen talks about they do belong to the same district of gaming if you like and are different ways of approaching a certain thing and and I you know I just wanted to jump in with with a defense of that region of gaming filtered through my own experiences primarily designing alluvial planes and the vantage system um so you know as Ireland says they 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 do they occupy the same area but they 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 function differently so now that Arlen and myself and others have defended that region of gaming it's absolutely absolutely the place you know it, it's absolutely the the right thing to do to differentiate between failing forward and success at a cost and there's no need to repeat that I just you know what Arlen said just send them right back to to his uh his great contribution in your recent episode thanks Jason uh, I'm looking forward to playing with you again. And in fact, what I wanted to say as well, I've, 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 I, you know, Arlen has said that he he's up for playing Alluvial Plains too sometime. So I really look forward to that experience precisely because of this issue of uh, success at a cost. Bye. Of course, that was Barney, the local Ludus podcast. Thank you so much for calling in, clarifying that position. And next we have Arlen Walker himself again, and he's going to talk a little bit more about failing forward now that he's listened to the episode of Frankenstein's RPG where they discuss falling, failing forward. Now I'm going to also link that episode of Frankenstein's RPG in the show notes so you guys can go listen to it as well if you haven't already. I didn't take away the same thing that Arlen did from that episode, but that's okay. I'm kind of curious what you guys take from that episode. What I took from that episode was that failing forward, having these mechanics where it adds, you know, success at a cost or something or failure or success with a complication happens too often 
and it's a pain in the GM's butt to have to come up with all these complications. That's what I took away from that episode, but I haven't listened to it since it came out. Maybe I should re-listen to it. But now I'm going to play Arlen's calls where he's going to tell you what he took from that episode. And then I'm going to close the show out. So thank you so much for tuning in. And, you know, I'll be back next time with a lighter show. Although, you know, if you have any comments on what we talked about today, call in. Um, happily play any messages. But I'm going to turn, this, turn it over to Arlen so he can talk about failing forward in that episode of Frankenstein's RPG. And then we'll play out the episode. Take care, folks. Hey, Jason. It's Arlen calling in because I finally got a chance to listen to the Frankenstein's RPG episode about combat and failing forward. And I had a couple of comments based on that. Um, the first one is that they have a whole episode on great combat systems and there's no mention of the Riddle of Steel. And that, that makes my heart hurt as a, a partisan for the Riddle of Steel because it's such a good game. And just generally so cool and all that sort of stuff. And anyway, it's okay. Uh, I will recover eventually, perhaps. But we'll see. Anyway, the other thing I was going to say is that I don't think they did a very good job talking about failing forward and partial success particularly. It seems like that's more of what their discussion is about, is about partial success than, than any other kind of particular form of these sort of narrativist techniques. And I think the big reason for that is that they don't really discuss the mathematics of these techniques at all when they are a part of the game's mechanisms. And that's an important discussion to have because I think if you pay attention to the math behind these techniques, you'll see that they're not nearly as um, soft, for lack of a better term, as, as player favorable. They're not nearly as everybody gets a trophy as you might think. And the reason for that is that the, the actual, if you basically to, to summarize it, if you made a sort of pie chart of success and failure, obviously in some old school games, failure is very, very common, especially if you're talking about like thief skills where thieves only have, you know, a 20% chance to do X thing. Um, but if you make a pie chart of success and failure, for certainly for more modern games, success and failure are probably fairly even at low levels, maybe even a leaning towards uh, success over failure. And when you get to the actual math on these um, more story games with uh, partial success consequences, you'll find that they lean the the chunk that is taken out of the amount of times you fail is much smaller, I think, than the chunk that is taken out of the amount of times you free and clear succeed. And to, to talk more specifically about the math, for instance, in a Powered by the Apocalypse game with the sort of standard Powered by the Apocalypse resolution, it's 2d6 versus a um, sort of scale. Uh, a six or less is a free and clear a complete failure. A seven to nine is a partial success and a 10 or higher is a complete success. And what that means is that if your character doesn't have any bonus, that the most common result you're going to get is partial success. And in order to get 
a free and clear success, you have to get a 10 or higher on 2d6, which is not very likely, right? A 10 or higher on 2d6 is, is pretty rare on raw 2d6. Now, if you've got a couple of bonuses, then the odds are better. But every character, or every time that I've ever played a Powered by the Apocalypse game, characters have had to roll the dice with no bonuses or even with penalties. And they are very likely to either get a partial success or fail, right? Those are in, in situations like that because of the way that the, the bell curve, obviously it's not a, a curve, it's a flat line, but because the way that the bell curve works on 2d6, if they don't have any bonuses, the most common result is a partial success followed very closely by a complete failure, right? Six or less on 2d6 is not that uncommon, right? Six or less as a result is, is pretty common. Um, and what that means, because, um, and what that means, and uh, Joe pointed this out too, that a six or less is not like a partial success or a fail forward or anything like that. It's a straight up failure. It's a, you failed at what you were trying to do. Your task and intent doesn't work out the way that the character was hoping. Um, it's not a, you know, well, you get most of what you want or some of what you want or anything like that. In order to get some of what you want, you have to get at least a partial success. Um, or to use another example with the blades in the dark forged in the dark system. Um, the one I'm more familiar with is errant deeds, tall tales in the blackwood, which is a really cool game. Um, but in that you have 12 different actions you can take and they're either at a rating of untrained, trained, or expert and untrained ratings mean you get one die, one six sided die to roll. And on a one, two, or three, you fail. On a four or a five, you get a partial success. And on a six, you get a full success. So if you're untrained at what you're trying to do, your odds of getting a success at all are only 50-50. But your odds of getting a full success, you know, of getting all of what you wanted are pretty low, right? They're only one in six. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind with the way that a lot of these narrativist techniques are implemented in games is that they're really not, they're there to make the players' lives more interesting. And that's something that the Frankenstein's RPG podcast seemed to lean in on is the idea that failure is interesting. And the, the sort of idea behind a lot of these things is, yes, failure is interesting. Partial success is interesting too. Partial success, it seems like the argument is, is sometimes more interesting than just failure or success. And so we added a whole section of results that don't exist in a lot of other um, resolution systems, at least naturally, you can, you can sort of bring them in, right? If you wanted to, it, I've talked about how like playing 5e, you could say, well, a 10 or higher is a partial success and a 15 or higher is a free and clear success, that sort of thing. But anyway, um, what I'm getting at is that the actual math suggests that the designers of these partial success fail forward games understand that failure is really interesting and that failure is a regular occurrence in these games, right? If you look at just, just the dice rolling, you're going to fail a lot, not all the time, not even necessarily most of the time, but definitely a, um, probably a plurality of the time compared to partial success or complete success. So I thought that was something that they didn't really touch on in in the Frankenstein's RPG episode. And that, to me, is where um, 
the the distinction comes in that you know it's not just oh we can't possibly have the characters fail it's actually in its implementation much more like oh we can't just have the characters succeed we've got to you know nickel and dime them on their way right if that makes sense that it's much more about making sure that the characters don't free and clear succeed than it is about making sure that they don't completely fail at what they're at their intent and task um which is kind of an interesting thing because i think it i think it um is a different perspective than you might expect from the way a lot of people talk about these games. But that if you look at the math, it seems to me pretty obvious that that's the expectation that, you know, a game like Apocalypse World, you're going to fail pretty regularly at what you try to do. If you roll the dice, if you trigger a move, failure, significant possibility, not always a guarantee, but failure is a significant possibility in in Powered by the Apocalypse, in these Blades in the Dark games, in all these sorts of things. Even in something like um, Fate, I think, there's an idea that, you know, players might not necessarily fail as often, but they're going to have to spend Fate points in order to succeed pretty regularly, right? That's what the the whole kind of narrative metacurrency economy of fate is about is about making sure that the players keep um keep getting into interesting situations which gets them fate points which allows them to succeed in getting out of those interesting situations anyway the point being of all of this is that i don't think that the frankenstein's rpg people really considered the actual implementation of these ideas and just sort of took the sort of worst case scenario and by worst case scenario, I basically mean the sort of least interesting, least um, generous view of these different systems and these different um, methodologies of mechanism. And therefore, they had a, a fairly negative view that is not necessarily, you know, it's all um, ultimately up to preference that, you know, nobody has to like these types of systems, but it's worth you know, it's the difference between a criticism that engages with the implementation and a criticism that just sort of says, well, I think that if done in this way, it's bad, and that's not the way it's done, and therefore that criticism isn't really as, as valid, in my opinion, um, because it doesn't engage with the actual implementation of that concept and just sort of uses a negative view of that concept. But anyway, that's just me, so... Yeah.